This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today, we have Tanya on the podcast. Tanya is autistic. She's a public servant researcher and a parent. So tell us, what does neurodivergence mean to you? That's a really interesting question. Um, It actually means to me that my brain is wired differently to other people. Um, I tend to think of neurotypical brains as being less wired, whereas I've got all these tendrils and wires, and that tends to affect everything that I do from other people. Um, It's distinctly different, but I think it's different in a really positive way. It's interesting that you kind of have this really nuanced um, understanding of neurodivergence. I'm just wondering if you can share how you came to kind of that level of understanding. Ever since that I discovered that I was neurodivergent myself, I've been doing a lot of reading on it Mm -hmm. and I've read hundreds of articles and it led me to realise just how differently my brain works. And so I've seen lots of different images. I think the most beautiful one I've seen is a neurodivergent brain lit up like a rainbow. And it's just amazing. And I feel that's how my brain works because I don't have a single way I do things. I often go on these multiple paths, if you like. And I think the way I do things really captures that image of going, oh, I'll go down this path. Oh, I'll go down another path. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm building paths as I go, whereas I know a lot of people who just went on a single pathway and that was their only goal. I'm going, oh, I'm sure there's more I can do. Mm. So it's just my whole way of doing, I feel, reflects what's happening in my brain. Yeah, so it's sort of like um, you have done all this research and a lot of it has just really resonated with the way that you think about things, the way that you operate. Exactly. And I always come up with multiple ways of thinking and doing and and, and looking. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really, I feel like I walk in the shoes of lots of different people. And it's funny because autistic people often get tarred with having no theory of mind. And I find that a really frustrating view because I actually walk in the shoes of lots of different people. um, And I can see things from lots of different angles. It's that multi-lens, multi-perspective. And so each time I walk in a different pathway, I see something from a different perspective. What did this person think or did that person think? So, and maybe it's because I have trouble reading people that I need to step inside different shoes in order to understand how they do things. That's a really fascinating comment. Um, Do you have any examples of times when you felt like, um, neurotypical people around you really haven't been able to grasp something about, you know, how someone's been feeling or what's been going on. And to you, it's just been so obvious. Look, all the time. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think a lot of that is I'm on some parenting pages and often to me, what they're saying about their child is it's, they've missed the bleedingly obvious. I don't know how to put it, uh, put it other than that. It's just like, well, the issue is sensory, not disruptive behaviour. And if you meet a sensory need, that's how you actually solve the issue. So so they're going from it as a problem instead of going, how can I actively help my child? And that's probably one of my biggest frustrations, going, there's a different way of doing. 
And that's why you need to look at things from a different perspective. Mm. Oh, my God. There's like eight different topics in that that I (laughs) want to chat with you about. Um, But let's just sort of put a pin in those for now um, because I think I'd really like to hear from you, Tanya, how you first realised you were neurodivergent and can you tell us a little bit about that journey? I first realised I was neurodivergent when my son got diagnosed several years back. Um, It's up there with my Elsa from Frozen moment. Um, I cried but not because I was sad but because I was happy and all of a sudden all the things which had happened to me in my life made perfect sense about why I struggled in high school, why there were some things I could do really well and not so well and I didn't even know at that point that women could be autistic. Like most people, I thought autism meant the typical main man type view. I didn't know what an autistic woman looked like or what she did or how she did things. And it was at that point I decided I needed to read as much as I could about autistic women. The other thing I did that was a real positive was to join some online Facebook groups for autistic mothers. And that has been such an eye-opener for me as well, both the reading as well as connecting to other autistic women. So I learned, for instance, that one of my stims, which is picking, is something that so many autistic women do. And it was such a relief to know that even some of the little things which I did was a stim and there was a good reason that I had trouble with managing it and all those sorts of things. So that was a great experience. But also the fact that There are times where I can be an absolute extrovert and chat away and other times where I just don't want to talk to people. So if I'm feeling safe, I'll be really chatty. If I'm not feeling safe, I just become an introvert straight away and I stop talking. I'm lucky at home that my husband, who's so wonderful, um, is one of my safe places. I drive him batty at times by talking too much. (laughs) But um, that's a really good thing. So it sounds like through that process of finding out you were neurodivergent, what I'm sort of hearing from you is that all these pieces kind of clicked into place. And, um, you know, I was saying before that there's a million and one things out of what you've just said that um, I would love to talk for an hour about um, for each of them. Um, But in that process, did you feel at all like there was almost a exfoliation of shame in some way or I don't know, talk me through your mental process and mental health process around that. Look, I, I think the reason it was so important to realise that I was autistic was I stopped feeling like a mental defect. I've been open with a fair few people, but I've been seeing counsellors since I was about 13, since I started mm. high school. Uh, always had something wrong with me. Um, I don't know what, whether it's anxiety or something else. And then I saw more counsellors and then I saw more psychologists and I and just never been able to pinpoint about why it was that I did things in a certain way and why it was an issue. So realising I was autistic made me realise that the things I did weren't an issue. In fact, they were just part of my... Um, uh, genetic or my brain makeup and that was such a relief and such a happiness to go it's okay if I'm a bit anxious it's okay if I have trouble connecting to people and it made me realize that some of those difficulties that I experienced with say high school friendships or um, I, I was bullied severely in high school I was bullied severely in two high schools not here but in another state and I couldn't understand why I, w- I was bullied. Mm-hmm. And I remember having people told me I was at fault for being bullied. Um, 
So you kind of go, oh, wow, I wasn't actually at fault. I just couldn't read people and I wish someone had helped me to read people or navigate some of the different social issues that happen at high school, but I didn't have anyone because I didn't realise that I was Mm. autistic at the time. And Tanya, you mentioned that you have had a long history of seeing various counsellors, psychologists, you know, mental health professionals along the way. Um, Are there any kind of diagnoses or misdiagnoses, as you now see them maybe, um, that you were kind of labelled with? I don't think they ever specifically said anything in particular. They just helped me try and resolve the the current issue of the day. Um, I've always been anxious and I've always had anxiety, but it was just a case of, well, let's do enough to get you through to the next step. Mm. So... Mm. Yeah, and it was a frustration because they didn't even mention any of those things. And I don't even think I realised that I had trouble reading people until I actually realised that I was autistic. So, Tanya, you were telling us a little bit before about how uh, when your son was diagnosed, that was really the first um, kind of clue for you or that sort of set you down this path. Um, I was wondering if you could just share with us a little bit about how, you know, being neurodivergent has affected your parenting or your experience as a parent. Look, I I think one of the things that often gets overlooked, particularly with uh, autistic mums, is the sensory issues that go with it. And there are some major sensory issues. I struggled with breastfeeding really badly. I found that absolute sensory torture. And I wish in hindsight, I knew that that could happen to me, but no one told me. Um, And just how awful that was. The other thing I struggle with is the noise. It's one of my biggest challenges too much noise and I start to feel overwhelmed Mm. so I wish there were some strategies around helping autistic people manage those noises because you can't stop kids from being noisy yes so (laughs) um how do you deal with it because you can't constantly tell your kids to be quiet are there any things that you found have worked for you um or strategies you've kind of come up with or things you've implemented uh to help you manage some of that sensory component of of parenting look i think it's because i've got to put the kids needs in front of Mm -hmm. my own so i'm not really a, a hugger as such um but my kids like being hugged, as mm-hmm. all kids do, and that's one of the kids' languages of love. Right. And so I've learned to put their needs above my own needs and go, I've got to give my kids a hug because they really need the hug and that's how they feel loved. So it's one of those things you've kind of got to weigh up what's really important here. Um the noise, it's a case of, well, what can I do to minimise it? So I say to the kids, you can be loud, but it just has to be less loud for mummy. And I actually tell the, I tell them mum's autistic like them and that when I start to feel frustrated or overwhelmed, I let them know because that way they can see how I manage it. Mm. But it also helps them to um, slow their engines down, if you like, as well so that we're all doing it at the same time. It doesn't always work. Um, Sometimes I've just got to send the kids on the trampoline to bounce around and make much noise as they like, and that means I'm away from the big lot of noise. So it's those kinds of things, but no one ever tells you that Mm. noise overload is an issue and how it will affect you. So that becomes one of those things which is constantly having to be managed. 
And I think this is something that neurotypical people don't really consider at all. Um, and I was having this sort of thought the other day. I walked into my house and um, it was incredibly noisy. And I immediately felt frazzled, I guess there's no other word for it. Um, and I had that thought that, you know, this is, I'm feeling frazzled on such a minor level. And yet, for individuals on the spectrum, particularly, you know, kids when they're at school, um, and you were kind of alluding to this before, Tanya, that it's that um, implicit information that, no, no, you're actually in the wrong for your nervous system responding in the way that it's naturally set up to respond. Mm -hmm. um, and I can only imagine how damaging that must feel and how discombobulating that must be to mm. be kind of told constantly that, you know, your basic sensory needs, and every single human being has sensory needs, it just mm. depends what they are, your basic sensory needs mean that you're naughty or wrong or mm. something along those lines. Mm. And, and that's exactly right. So noise is one of those funny ones, and I look back to other examples of, of noise, for instance, is auditory processing, which is a major issue for me. So to... To diverge, often people think I'm not paying attention, mm. um, but that's – I am paying attention, but if there's a complexity of noise around, I actually can't hear what they're saying. So, for instance, there might be a printer going on in the background. There might be people talking on the background. The tap might be on, and then the person is talking to me. So I've got all these different sounds, and my brain literally can't focus on what the person is saying. I've actually learnt that I have to – mentally focus on the person's voice in order to hear them otherwise I just don't hear a word mm -hmm. and then people think oh but you're not listening to me and I go I am listening but there's just so many complex noises my brain literally is just overloaded and is desperately trying to expunge all the noise around it otherwise it just can't process or I need to come up with a different strategy where I say hang on please wait for the noise to settle down and then I can listen to you because otherwise I just won't hear them. And then I've got kids at home and so when they come home, they want to chat about this school day, which is good, and 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 I do that and I like hearing about it. But then it's a case of they turn on the iPads, they go get a drink of water, the microwave goes on to make food and then there's all this noise again and it just becomes, okay, so I've got to somehow manage the noise but I've learned it only actually lasts for a few minutes. So that's one of my strategies going, I've seen this happen so much. I know it's only going to last five minutes while they settle in and then the, there will be silence. So just try and remind the yeah. system it's going to be over soon. And that's how I manage that initial when they first get home, yeah. all the noise. And that's a great strategy too, when you can't actually change the sensory input for some reason, mm. um, just making it more predictable. You know, so it sounds like in that instance, um, you can't really uh, put your kids on mute um, <laughs> or the house on mute. But in your mind, you're saying, okay, well, I know exactly how long this sensation, whatever, is going to last. Mm. And that makes it easier to cope with by having it be predictable. Exactly. And even when I'm at work, from when I first joined the workforce many moons ago, I've got a 1990s cassette TX. 
uh, radio and I have that on as white noise and that actually helps me focus at work because it's a soothing noise, if you like. It's a bit of music, but it also helps drown out some of the other sounds. I can't actually cope with headphones. I actually find them quite sensory health, to be honest. So I have a radio. Mind you, there's times where I do have to wear them and that's okay. So I just remind myself it's only for a short time. But it's amazing how that little strategy of a radio, which I didn't even realise when I started in the workforce in the 90s, was actually my way of coping. Mm. Um, I think that's a really important point to make that I've got all these coping strategies which I've developed over the years to keep myself safe and to protect myself and I apply them and I don't even realise they're taken for granted if you like and I just have them every day there with me and I think when I realised I was autistic it made me realise that those taken for granted strategies were actually deliberate strategies by me to keep myself safe. Yeah, I think it's amazing how you've adapted um, and found those strategies without even realising it. I think that's so cool. Yeah, it's kind of nice that you go how adaptive human beings are and how innovative we are. And I think it's also really amazing how um, adaptive autistic people are. We often get framed in the literature and in the media as being very rigid and not being adaptable and can't cope with change. I don't like change, but I've actually developed lots of strategies over the years to actually manage that change in such a way that keeps me safe. Mm -hmm. And I use that term safe a lot because at the end of the day, if I feel safe, then I can be myself and I can take my mask off. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really lucky that I don't have to mask now so much, but when I first joined the workforce, I had to mask a lot. Just two things in what you were sharing there, Tanya. The first thing that I think is super interesting is the comment that you made about how people who are autistic are often framed as highly rigid, super controlling, need to have everything exactly in a particular way. Um, And what we know, and I think what's come out in what you've been sharing is that Actually, the level of rigidity or control is in direct proportion to the level of stress and the Mm. level of trauma. Mm. And all of us feel like we want to have more control over our environment when we feel out of control, Mm. when we feel like we have no options. Um, And so often what we see is that as people who are autistic actually have um, improvements in their mental health and they feel safer, as you were saying, Tanya. Mm. The need for, um, you know, rigidity or a highly specific environment actually decreases and the ability to be flexible increases. And that's normal for all human beings. Mm. Um, It's just that individuals on the spectrum are often expected um, to just do things that are upsetting to your nervous system. And so it can look like, um, you know, we're more rigid when really that's not necessarily the case. The other thing I wanted to flag there and what you said was you were mentioning, you know, these unspoken rules. And to me, that sort of gets back to this idea that neurotypical and autistic are just different languages of communication. Mm. And just like if, you know, we're in another country and we might speak passable um italian or whatever it is we are going to make errors of grammar because Mm. it's not a second language and i really feel like in workplaces where you can feel safe um having colleagues know that you're not a neurotypical native speaker um can help but 
That's just my opinion. What's been your experience with that? Look, in my early part of my career, um, I had trouble understanding people. And I think that's because they were typically neurotypical. But over the latter part of my career, I've actually found myself drawn to autistic workplaces is probably the way I'm going to call it. And I have worked and, and know some fantastic autistic people, whether they are ready to come out or not, I don't know. But they're places where I just communicate so well with them. I remember listening to Chris Varney talk about how autistic people have conversations and how they have multiple streams at the same time and can keep track of them. And I cried in happiness because I thought, that's what I do. I do that. But I, I do that with other people I've, I've worked with. And it's so amazing to have that kind of conversation of absolute happiness where you're speaking the same language. Um, and I've been drawn to people, or a lot of my friendships in the workplace are, are people who are also suspected autistic. I know that they're going to be listening to this, but just that feeling of safety and that being able to communicate well with them. So there's a fantastic um, article in the Nature magazine about how autistic and neurotypical people communicate differently, and I love it. And it looks at the two-way nature of communication and it points out that autistic people communicate better with other autistic people but not so well with neurotypical people but interestingly it found that neurotypical people have trouble understanding the language of autistic people Mm. however I just want to um, have a plug here for my lovely neurotypical husband who actually understands my language, which is so fantastic. Um, not all autistic people are married to other autistic people, and I'm married to a, uh, a neurotypical man who I absolutely adore, and I'm lucky enough that he actually gets it. Um, I think there's some wonderful neurotypical allies out there who actually get it, but there's a lot of neurotypicals who, who don't actually see that that two-way difference in communication. And that's the part where it gets frustrating at times. Well, that's that's privilege, right? It's a really interesting quote that uh, privilege is just the ability not to have to learn. And, Mm. you know, we're talking about um, neurodiversity um, in in this podcast, but obviously there's lots of different elements of diversity. And I, I feel like, you know, I completely agree with you, Tanya, that it's often the non-privileged group that the burden of education and the burden of learning is placed on. And I think for us neurotypicals, we really need to take some of that burden off and educate ourselves. I think what's happened is society has framed um, autistic people in such a manner that it's always the deficit view and it's always the autistic person needs fixing, whether it's how they play, how they communicate, how they dress, the, the, the list goes on and on, um, but none of it's ever shared to go, well, maybe the neurotypical person needs to learn how to communicate like an autistic person. Um, and that's a big ask, and I think that's a – I don't want to use the word battle, but I think that's something that, that people have to try and strive to do. Um, uh, communication shouldn't rest on one particular group in society, and, and that does get frustrating at times. Mm. Well, I think the, 
the main theory around communication is that there's there's two parts. There's um, the person that's communicating and, and saying something, but to communicate successfully, the other party actually has to be able to take that in and listen and understand that. So mm. there is two parts to communication. Mm. Yeah. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through the huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like An Evening in Jasmine's Garden, Merida's Mystical Scottish Forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like Rolling Thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. An idea that I came across recently just on the difference between neurotypical versus autistic communication um, is that idea that for neurotypicals, the thing that communication tends to be centered around, and obviously this is a generalization um, and the other way, a generalization as well, um, but communication tends to be centered around wanting the other person to ask about relationship, feelings, experiences, things like that. Mm. And autistic communication tends to center around uh, sharing of ideas and information Mm. and interests. And that's, I think, where that multi-stream conversation comes in. Mm. I've got all these lanes. It's not that autistic people can't communicate in that other way, just like it's not like uh, neurotypical people can't communicate with a focus on interest. It's just where I think the priority goes to. And I feel like, similar to what you were saying, um, Monique, you know, communication is that two-way street. And sometimes when we're in a bilingual relationship, um, (laughs) whether that's romantic or friendship or professional, um, it's all about that flexibility of thinking, what does this other person need right now? And is this a conversation that can be an interest-based conversation? Do I need to ask this person some questions about, you know, their relationships or feelings or whatever it might be? And that's just relationships in general, Mm -hmm. right? That's Mm -hmm. just, you know, thinking about what the other person needs. How can you guys communicate? Um, And I think knowledge is always power. And having both parties know the other party's preferred method of communication, that's where you can get fluid 
relationships, fluid communication. Just touching on what you were saying, Michelle, as well, um, I was just wondering if maybe, yeah, that special interest comes into play in communication because often it is easier to make those connections, whether it's in the workplace, friendships, relationships, through having a shared interest. And I was just wondering if that's played out for you in terms of your career, Tanya, um, yeah, is your career based on any of your special interests and has that helped you connect with other people in the workplace that also share those interests? Well, the answer to that is most definitely. Probably my special interest in social justice started when I was about 11 or 12. Uh, it started off after I watched the movie Dances with Wolves back in the 90s. <laughs> Love it. And it was that whole social justice. And then when I went to high school, I had this fantastic history teacher, Mr. Davidson, who I still look back because he, he was a feminist and that was pretty unusual. I hadn't met a male feminist. And I ended up doing some uh, papers on Indigenous Australians and that got me on the social justice bent. And then that led me to go to university um, to study politics and philosophy and, and bioethics and a whole range of things and then end up doing honours in, in politics as well. Not politics as in um, Scott Morrison politics is in political theory and the political theory of that was how people think about the social world. Um, I'm a huge fan of Michel Foucault and Edward Said and um, Pierre Bourdieu and I, it was great to learn about how people thought about things and so that's where we're talking about the communication. Why is it that one person could say, I'm not a racist, but... So that became part of my special interest to learn about how people thought about things. And even when I did my PhD, I actually looked at the different thinking patterns of people, um, which was really interesting. Again, how do they communicate? Why are they having issues with communication? And that's just flowed on right throughout my career um, in terms of where I've gone. Um, I've also worked in research ethics as well, which is really interesting, uh, which I'm quite open about. And that's been great working with other people who have similar communication styles to me. Um, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I often think universities are full of autistic people who are undiagnosed. Some people might disagree with me on that and that's okay. I don't mind I feel that some of the people I've worked with over the years in universities would attest to that awkward communication and some of the things I've done going, ah, the reason I get along with them is because they had such similar communication traits to me. Well, I feel like working at a university really lends yourself to that, um, you know, type of thinking style and communication style. Because really when we talk about communication, um, communication is essentially just an outward manifestation of how we think, mm. right? Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it makes total sense to me that people whose whole profession is about studying something, understanding, teaching something, are probably more suited to having that autistic neurotype, which allows that really in-depth, deep, multi-lane rainbow um, mm. thinking that you described before. Um, yeah, that makes total sense to me. <laughs> yeah, and also I just think of not wanting to do small talk with other people. Um, you made the point, just going back earlier, how autistic people often focus on interests. Well, in universities, people talk about 
their interest and that's the key thing, not about family or things like that. Oh, what's your PhD on? What's your latest book on? Oh, what are you studying? Or have you read this book? So often when I'm communicating with other autistic people, one of the questions you ask is, what sci-fi book do you read? Because mm-hmm. nearly, and it's not to say that's the same for other autistic people, but it's one of those actually safe, implicit questions that you know you can ask other autistic people. You ask mm-hmm. them about their special interest, not about family or anything like that. Something that comes up for me a lot uh, therapeutically, particularly with um, adults, is in a situation when someone's asking me a stupid small talk question that they don't actually want the answer to, what I want to say is, no, thank you, and walk away. (laughs) But obviously, I can't do that. Um, So I, I, I wish I could do that. How can I do that? And we talk a bit about how, you know, actually neurotypicals have a way to say, no, thank you, and walk away. But it's one of those language things. And we talk about how, you know, if you just say, good, thanks, and then move your body language in a way that's clearly indicating um, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be part of this conversation, that has the same effect. But it's, it's just like you were saying, Tanya, you know, unless you actually have the manual, unless you know that that's how you say that in neurotypical mm. or French or German or whatever <laughs> language, then you're not sure how to kind of do those things without causing offence. Yeah, and I, I think getting diagnosed early is a big key to that. Like if you know from a young age that you're autistic, you know how your mind works, that it's okay to be you, um, and you kind of have that information of how to do what you need to do and get what you need done like you know okay how am I going to get through university how am I going to you know um have my first job in the workplace um you can sort of access those manuals and learn that language more easily because there is that ability to know okay I speak this language and I need to learn this other language for some situations where it might come in handy for me exactly and I think but also adding to that I would say is Kids that get a diagnosis need to be um, need to feel to be proud of that diagnosis as well, not to see it as mm. a deficit by anyone. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that, and I'm not to say this is all parents, but parents when they hear that diagnosis tend to cry because they think, oh, my kid's not going to go on to do all those wonderful things. You are, but th- your child's just going to do it in a different way to what you expected, and that's okay. And a different pathway is still a positive instead of framing it that that's the only way to go. Mm. Um, so I think we need to move away from that, that kids need to... Like I used um, language is often a big issue in the autistic community. So I use identity first. I go, I am autistic, just like I go, I am a mum, I am a researcher, I am Australian. I don't go person with autism because it, it, to me it sounds like I need to be cured and I don't want to be cured. And it also sounds like it's an accessory. Oh, there's my handbag. <laughs> Tanya with handbag. And I know that's an extreme. But it, it's, um, although in saying that, I have learned that I think there's some generational gaps around there. And there's also typically people in my age group, that sort of 20 to, to, to 40-something age group, tend to go, I'm autistic then you tend to find some of the older people who got their diagnosis under Asperger's mm-hmm. tend to go, I am a person with Asperger's. But the other thing you see is parents tend to go, my child has or is with autism. But I don't think they, there's that not 
quite being ready yet to embrace that autistic identity. And I think the reason it's so important to embrace it is because just how empowered you feel, how good you feel. So when someone says, I'm with autism, I'm like, oh, it kind of comes across as a bit bit derogatory. Uh, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. Well, I think um, going back to your excellent handbag example, um, <laughs> it sort of feels like something that you uh, can learn to put down yes. in a sense, right? Yeah, and that's it. And I can't put it down because everything I do and how I experience the world, the fact that I can't reverse parallel park a car is one of those things I've tried and tried. Like literally there is a brick wall in my brain and I think that's quite common for a lot of autistic people. And I can't tell you why the brick wall's there. I just can't remove it. So I can't reverse parallel park a car. But then there's other things I can do, which is I've uh, coded and analysed hundreds of interviews with a coding tool. And that for me was very easy and lots of fun. And I could do that really easily. But to someone else, they can reverse parallel park a car, but get a coding table and a coding program like in Viva. And I go, well, what do I do? And so if we just reverse them, you can actually see the fact that we've all got these sorts of blockers in our lives. Mm. Mm. So what strengths has being neurodivergent given you? What strengths has it given me? I think it's my attention to detail. I know that one comes up a lot and I know that sounds a bit trite, but honestly, the fact that I could do a PhD and and analyse 30 to 60-odd interviews and then put it into an 80,000-word thesis, attention to detail is really important. Mm-hmm. It's that I see things differently, and I think that's a really big key, that often that difference is framed as a negative. But I'll actually look at it from, I think I heard a great quote about uh, autistic people thinking outside the box, but then someone commented going, well, we actually never had a box in the first place. (laughs) And I thought that's a really apt description of the fact that we just don't, you know, we don't have it. And the other strength is that, you know, we're social disruptors, Mm. but in a really positive way because we actually want to help our fellow autistic community for the good. And I think that's one of the great strengths is we're, we're constantly trying to have this social justice and, and, and help others for, for the better. So I think there's some real strengths there. And I like the fact that I do things differently. I don't want to do them the neurotypical way. Yeah, I love that point about social justice. And, uh, you know, in my experience, I've found that that's often quite um, particular to women um, mm. who are neurodivergent. You look back through history all these incredible social change makers in various roles and positions in society. Obviously, we can't know for certain, um, mm. but, you know, just thinking about the way that they carried themselves in the world, not caring about social norms and saying, hang on, why are we doing it this way? This is a terrible way to do things. Mm. And that kind of really intense sort of single-mindedness when we're passionate about something. Um, yeah, I see that all the time in autistic women, that um, change maker, social disruptor, directing that intense energy in such a beautiful, positive way for social change. Mm. And that's, I think, one of my pet peeves when people chat about that old school sort of idea of people on the spectrum not having empathy or not having theory of mind, you know, the ability to think about how other people might be thinking, because it's really not what it's I see like in a practice. neurotypical might show um, that kind of empathy on a micro level, mm. but 
women, again, uh, in particular, uh, women who are autistic, show that on a macro scale, you know, thinking about Greta Thunberg, right, Mm. as just a modern example of that. Mm. Um, So as you were saying, Tanya, I think it's so important as a woman on the spectrum to really understand how these things might manifest differently. Exactly. And I think we need to shift away from this white male attitude Mm -hmm. and assume that that's what autism looks like in women. And the other thing is we somehow assume that there's a certain look. I mean, I'm married. I've got four degrees. I've got kids. I've held a job for, what, 25-odd years. Um, I, I started later, so that's probably... Probably the bigger difference is that I was about uh, 22 when I got my first full-time job. I love shopping and I wear dresses and I and all sorts of things and somehow that the autistic woman is just, you know, looks like the mirror image of a man. It's like, well, no, mm-hmm. we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, we're chatty. We give eye contact. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people mm-hmm. have heard that one before. I'm really good at giving eye contact. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid, I wasn't and I couldn't understand why that was an issue, but I've had to because of all the university teaching I've done over the years. And so people just tend to overlook it or they hear the chatting and go, but you're just a bit quirky. It's like, no, I've got lots of other things which I struggle with. I just don't tell you. Um, And I don't necessarily want to tell you until I feel safe to actually take that mask off completely. And then you'll see all the things which I have challenges with. Yes, Michelle, I don't know about you, but um, I've had people come in who are seeing me and tell me that um, they've been told by sort of, you know, experts or whatever that they're not autistic enough um, to get a diagnosis because they can give eye contact or they're married or they have a degree. (laughs) And it's just so incredibly um, insulting um, Mm. and invalidating to people and just really reflect that there is that need for that more up-to-date knowledge and the research that's reflecting uh, more of that knowledge about women on the spectrum. I would love to see a new diagnostic criteria for women and girls, autistic women and girls. I would also like to see parenting books specifically written for autistic parents, um, whether it's women or men and women and the sorts of issues they might experience, such as sensory overload and tips how to manage that. So what do you do, for instance, when your child's having a meltdown and that's triggered you to have a meltdown? Mm. I'd love to see some parenting advice on that. I'd love to see more studies about women and their camouflaging and their masking I'd like to see studies debunking the theory of mine and the whole... um, I know there's a lot on empathy. I'd love to see more on autistic communication, um, particularly how that's done. I recently read a paper about how autistic people interpret the faces of other autistic people differently from neurotypicals, and neurotypicals actually struggle with um, understanding the facial expressions of autistic people. I'd love to see more in that area. There's so much more that Mm. needs to be looked at and needs to be challenged. So you have mentioned some of the challenges that you've had in your early career um, and in high school in particular, Um, but I was just wondering about your earlier years, such as primary school. When I was in primary school, I was a very quiet kid, very shy, um, always probably on the sidelines 
um, absolutely horrible at sport, um, the complete and utter Gumby. Uh, I was always the absolute last to be picked. I liked primary school and I had some sort of friends, if I can put it like that. There were people I hung out with, but I'm not sure I really connected to them. I've got to say, speaking of high school, just for a minute, um, it was a really lonely place for me. Mm. And I think it was at that point that I realised I was different. I mm. felt like no one understood me at all. Mm -hmm. And I did have people that I associated with. I had a best friend, but I felt like there was no one there that actually got it until I got to university where I met other people who spoke the same language and it was like I'm home I'm, I'm feeling good so and I think when I realized that I was autistic that sense of feeling like I was home just increased a thousand times because I could be safe. So Tanya, is there any sort of top tips or advice um, or kind of little nuggets of wisdom um, you've sort of learned along the way that you'd like to share with others? Yeah, I sure would. I think I would say make sure you connect with other autistic people. That has been such an eye-opener for me and such a learning experience in such a positive way. It's helped me understand so many of the things I do that you can't find in a textbook. I do love reading and I do love books, but that real life experience that you get from connecting to other autistic people, particularly I've connected to other autistic mums, mm -hmm. has just been amazing. They are my family online, if I can put it like that, and I know they're going to listen to this one. Uh, I love them all. They're fantastic. And just the supportive nature about if I've got a question or if you share a funny meme, it's so great to find that so many other people do those sorts of things just like you, and, and that's a great tip. Um, find your safe people regardless of where they are. I've got heaps of safe people at work, and that's so good for me that I can take my mask off and that no one's worried no matter what comes at what I say. Sorry, Tanya, can I just jump in there? How would you describe or define a safe person? Like what makes someone a safe person for you? Someone that lets me talk about my special interests nonstop to my heart's content. Um, someone that lets me tell them what's going on in my head no matter how interesting it seems. And, and he's still there. Someone who doesn't judge me at all and is going, I'm here for you. Someone that lets me vent. And I think that's not too dissimilar to all people. Mm. It's that sense of belonging. It's that, that sense of safety. Or if I talk to the person and I make a funny joke about my anxiety, they laugh because they actually understand it because they get it themselves. Mm. So, mm. yeah, it's those kinds of things, I think. Yeah, it kind of just sounds like exactly as you said, um, you know, just a friend. Yeah. You know, someone who you connect with. And that's really, I guess, the fundamental of any relationship. The non-negotiables of relationships are feeling safe, feeling liked, feeling respected and mm. feeling understood. Exactly. And I think the thing that people need to understand is that autistic needs are not too dissimilar to neurotypical needs. So often we separate them out, but we don't need to. Yes, there's different methods of communication. Yes, there's different ways of doing but at the end of the day it's still communication it's still human needs and i think that's what we need to focus on
It was great to hear from Tanya today on her journey with autism and learning that she's autistic. It sounds like it was a big game changer for her and a real turning point. It sounds like for Tanya, a lot of the things that her brain does naturally over the course of her life, um, she had been made to feel like these things were problems that needed to be fixed about her. And one thing that I really liked from um, her description of her experiences was once she realized that she was autistic, it gave a lot of meaning to those things and actually allowed her to see them in a completely different light. Um, You know, rather than a deficits model, more of that strength-based model. Yeah. And it was um, interesting to hear about just the lack of material for autistic parents Mm, um, mm. that is specific and and helpful and meaningful for them. Um, And it was great to hear about her experiences parenting. So thanks for tuning in today, guys. And make sure to check out our Facebook and Instagram page and like them. And uh petition for people with ADHD with a late diagnosis to get fair and equal access to treatment under the PBS. That has been recently featured in an ABC article. So if you go to ABC or our Facebook page, we have the article featured and check out the petition and the article, sign, share them both and help us fight for people with that adult diagnosis to get fair treatment.